The French Revolution, A History by Thomas Carlyle, Volume 2, The Constitution, Book 1, The Feast of Pikes, Chapter 6, Prodigies. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Peter Dan. Book 1, Chapter 7, Prodigies. To such length had the contrast social brought it in believing hearts. Man, as is well said, lives by faith. Each generation has its own faith, more or less, and laughs at the faith of its predecessors, most unwisely. Grant, indeed, that this faith in the social contract believes to the strangest sorts, that an unborn generation may very wisely, if not laugh, yet stare at it and piously consider. For, alas, what is contra? If all men were such that a mere spoken or sworn contract would bind them, all men were then true men and government a superfluity. Not what thou and I have promised to each other, but what the balance of our forces can make us perform to each other, that, in so sinful a word as ours, is the thing to be counted on. But above all, a people and a sovereign promising to one another, as if a whole people changing from generation to generation, nay, from hour to hour, could ever by any method be made to speak or promise, and to speak mere solecisms. We be the heaven's witness, which heavens, however, do no miracles now. We, ever-changing millions, will allow thee, changeful unit, to force us or govern us. The world has perhaps seen few faiths comparable to that. So, nevertheless, had the world then construed the matter. Had they not so construed it, how different had their hopes been, their attempts, their results. But so, and not otherwise, did the upper powers will it to be. Freedom by social contract, such was verily the gospel of that era. And all men had believed in it, as in a heaven's glad tidings men should, and with overflowing heart and uplifted voice clave to it, and stood fronting time and eternity on it. Nay, smile not, or only with a smile sadder than tears. This, too, was a better faith than the one it had replaced, than faith merely in the everlasting nothing and man's digestive power, lower than which no faith can go. Not that such a universally prevalent, universally durant feeling of hope could be a unanimous one. Far from that. The time was ominous, social dissolution near and certain, social renovation still a problem, difficult and distant, even though sure. But if ominous to some clearest onlooker, whose faith stood not with one side or with the other, nor in the ever-vexed jarring of Greek with Greek at all, how unspeakably ominous to dim royalist participators, for whom royalism was mankind's palladium, for whom, with the abolition of most Christian kingship and most Talleyrand bishopship, all loyal obedience, all religious faith was to expire, and final night envelop the destinies of man. On serious hearts of that persuasion, the matter sinks down deep, prompting, as we have seen, to backstairs plots, to emigration with pledge of war, to monarchic clubs, nay, to still madder things. The spirit of prophecy, for instance, had been considered extinct for some centuries. Nevertheless, these last times, as indeed is the tendency of last times, do revive it so that, of French mad things, we might have sample also of the maddest. In remote rural districts, where the philosophism has not yet radiated, 
where a heterodox constitution of the clergy is bringing strife round the altar itself, and the very church bells are getting melted into small money coin, it appears probable that the end of the world cannot be far off. Deep musing at Trebilia old men, especially old women, hint in an obscure way that they know what they know. The Holy Virgin, silent so long, has not gone dumb. And truly now, if ever more in this world, were the time for her to speak. One prophetess, though careless historians have omitted her name, condition and whereabouts, becomes audible to the general ear, credible to not a few, credible to Friar Girl, poor patriot Chartreux in the National Assembly itself. She, in Pythoness's recitative, with wild staring eye, sings that there shall be a sign, that the heavenly sun himself will hang out a sign or mock sun, which many say shall be stamped with the head of hanged Favre. List, Dom Gerl, with that poor rattled pole of thine, list, O oh, list, and hear nothing. Notable, however, was that magnetic vellum, veline magnétique, of the Sieur Dozier et Petit Jean, parlementeers of Rouen. Sweet young Dozier, bred in the faith of his missal and of parchment genealogies, and of parchment generally, a dust, melancholic, middle-aged Petit Jean, why came these two to Saint-Clair, where his majesty was hunting on the festival of St. Peter and St. Paul, and waited there in antechambers, a wonder to whispering Swiss the live-long day, and even waited without the gates, when turned out and had dismissed their valets to Paris, as with purpose of endless waiting. They have a magnetic vellum, these two, whereon the virgin, wonderfully clothing herself in mesmerian caliostrotic occult philosophy, has inspired them to jot down instructions and predictions for a much straitened king, to whom, by higher order, they will this day present it and save the monarchy and world. Unaccountable pair of visual objects, ye should be men and of the eighteenth century, but your magnetic vellum forbids us so to interpret. Say, are ye aught? Thus ask the guardhouse captains, the mayor of St. Cloud. Nay, at great length, thus asks the committee of researchers, and not the municipal, but the national assembly one. No distinct answer for weeks. At last it becomes plain that the right answer is negative. Go, ye chimeras, with your magnetic vellum, sweet young chimera, a dust middle-aged one. The prison doors are open. Hardly again shall ye preside the Rouen chamber of accounts, but vanish obscurely into limbo. End of Book 1, Chapter 7